Welcome to a new episode of The Brand Called You. We've brought some really, really interesting people over the last few months to you. And I'm delighted to introduce my old friend from college, business school, Saurav Adhikari. Saurav, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ashur. Privileged to be here. Saurav is from my business school, Jamnalal Bajaj. She spent 15 years with Unilever, 20 years with the HCL Group, Pepsi and Group SEB. And he's currently a senior advisor with the Shiv Nadar Foundation and an executive council member of Shiv Nadar University. Saurav, you only worked for four companies in your life. Tell me some of the key highlights of your professional career. I'm glad you say only four companies because in today's generation... They move every six months. Every six months, right? In my time when I joined, I remember the very first thing I was told by Dr. Ashok Ganguly, who was the legendary chairman of Hindustan Lever in those days. And he said, look, you know, welcome young management trainees. We take a very select few into the hallowed portals of Unilever. And this is a job for life. It's like a government job. I mean, you retire here, people get a housing loan, they buy a house and... You know, the only thing we do not tolerate is dishonesty. Integrity was one of the most important values. So, you know, leave us like you were at IDC, you know, is a place which encourages loyalty, longevity, the right values in life, right? One had no reason to leave. But the big difference that began happening is in the 90s with the liberalization was unleashed by Manmohan Singh. I remember sitting in Levers watching the change. I mean, it wasn't really the television era, so you heard a lot on, uh, on radio. There was really no intent of leaving Hindustan Lever, Unilever. But with those forces that were unleashed by Manmohan Singh, Pepsi came into the country and Pepsi was a very disruptive force in the marketing area. They hired a lot of Levers people because they felt you got good quality talent with a very important virtue that Ashok Gauli first mentioned is integrity. That whatever you do, I mean, your professionalism is a given, but your integrity is something that just cannot be questioned directly. So I moved to Pepsi, very similar values. Then I moved on to become a startup CEO at the age of 35 at Groupset, which mm-hmm. has brands like Molinex, Tefal, Rovetta, a very exciting ride. Mm-hmm. And then I got the calling of technology. So I remember reading a book, which is which said from Pepsi to Apple. Mm-hmm. You remember the yeah, yeah, Scully. uh, Scully's book. Yeah. And I, by the way, it's, it's really many years later, I ended up reading uh, John Scully. It's very interesting. And I said, listen, I mean, you know, I'm nowhere near the celebrity state as you are, but I also did a, did a Pepsi to technology jump, not to Apple, but to HCR. Yeah. So I had this very interesting meeting with Ajay Chaudhary, a co-founder of HCL and Shiv Nader. And they said, listen, I mean, you know, we understand that you're not a technology guy. I'm not an engineer. I'm an economics undergrad and an MBA. And he said, look, coming into any business Mm -hmm. is applying the basics, whatever you learned. And would you take the leap of faith? So I took the leap of faith. So I moved from FMCG to another FMCG, Pepsi, from Unilever to Pepsi, to a durable company, which is Group Set to technology. I don't like being thrown into the deep end. And in those days, I'm talking of these changes all happened between the early to mid-90s to uh, the year 2000. It was quick, quick changes. And then I had a wonderful ride with HCL for uh, 19 years. It was exceptional. What were some of the key roles you did in HCL? So in HCL, which was my longest stint and the one from which I have now stepped off from a full-time role, is I started off as a startup CEO for a networking company. Mm-hmm. Now, this is a company that networked basically highly dispersed and geographically dispersed operations and brought them together to the power of connectivity. Mm-hmm. Right. So what you see is the internet, but it really was 
what are called virtual private networks. So you have secured communication across. It was a very, it was a relatively radical thought in those days because companies were still struggling with what is connectivity and people used to use satellite. Sure. And landlines began being laid in India back in the 90s actually. So this was fiber. And what we used to call dark fiber. That means it wasn't lit up. The moment you energize the fiber, it communicates. And what today you take for granted when you pick up your phone or you pick up your uh, laptop and you talk to anybody across the world was a very difficult challenge in the early 2000s. The internet was new. Remember the internet was just started getting popular in the mid to late 90s. Yep. Absolutely. So I rode that wave, was yep. the startup CEO for a company called Infinite, which provided connectivity. Yep. Went on from there, I was sent to the US by Shiv, Shiv Nader, to head up the BPO business there. Had a phenomenal ride there. Then I, at one point, which is interesting, Shiv Nader wanted to come back from the US back to India because he felt his job, he was living in the Bay Area at that time. The center of gravity of technology, while the innovation is going to happen in, in America, mm-hmm. the pivot of that, I mean, the core change is going to happen out of India. So you can place a American to be living in America, enjoy the good life, you know, everything else that America offers, the big American dream. But remember, there's a big Indian dream to follow. No regrets. I came back over the year 2005 and thereafter came back to head strategy which was my most wonderful job. And I stayed in strategy from the time I came back to the time I literally stepped off on March 31st of this year, where I had a phenomenal oversight over how HCL was viewing its global business. So just to give you a sense, Mm -hmm. when I joined HCL, we were only $400 billion in size. Today, we are about a $9.5 billion firm, tending towards $10 billion, a market gap of over $20 billion dollars, unthinkable when I joined HCL that this is what would happen. But that's the kind of revolution I managed to participate in. So staying with HCL, now you are associated with the Shiv Nadar Foundation. Right. What are some of the areas the foundation looks at? I know that you're also focused on the art galleries or the art collection. But there are so many other things the foundation is doing. So interestingly, the foundation is woven together by largely Shiv's thought of how do you transform India, how do you contribute towards nation building through education, right? I'll come to art in a minute. So if you look at what constitutes the Shivnada Foundation, we are involved from K-12 all the way up to PhDs. So you take somebody through the entire intellectual development cycle, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So we have literacy program, digital literacy program, which I'm very deeply involved with. We run something called Project Shiksha, which we hand out to the government to run literally free of charge. Mm -hmm. We develop content based on the local curriculum and it's all digital. Mm -hmm. So we can project it on, you know, literally on walls using projectors and darkened rooms. Children can play, they can laugh, they can sing, it's animated. Mm -hmm. So rather than have, you know, teacher absenteeism, this can be run through Shiksha Mitra. So we do literacy programs at the very basic level at very, very poor districts of Uttar Pradesh currently. It is going to spread over time. Then we have in K-12, we have a wonderful institution called Vidya Gyan which is a completely free boarding school like the Mayos and the Dunes and the Sindhyas and, and where is the great public schools. And there are two, two such schools. One is in Bulanshahar okay. in UP and the other is in Sitapur near Lucknow. Okay. Now, you know, look at UP. Even today, you know, literacy levels are hovering around, you know, in the early 70s. Now, that means that a state which has 220, 230 million people, more than a quarter, right? 50, 60 million people do not know how to read and write. But from that, there's enormous talent. You know, India has numbers, right? There's so much talent. So we said, look, we cannot 
the government is the biggest philanthropist, which is something Shiv used to always say. Because they have the money, they have the resources, there is taxes, they can deploy it. But in Vidya Gyan, what we did is we picked the best and the brightest in an in an examination that was open to the entire state of Uttar Pradesh. And the selection rate was under 1%. In fact, it's tougher sure. to get into Vidya Gyan than into an IIT. Sure. But from class 6 to 12, the students get completely free education. They are their health is looked after, their clothing, their transport back and forth to the village. They are given not just basic, you know, curriculum related, you know, classroom learning, but a lot of holistic learning. You try to level the playing fields, so ability to speak English, social skills. And now some of these children are doing exceptionally well in engineering colleges. They've reached Delhi University. Many of them have gone overseas to the US. Amazing. So it is Shiv's vision of actually having talent emerging from the poorest districts of India going up. So that's literacy program and Vidya Gap. Then of course, as you know, as a resident of Gurgaon, we have the Shivnada schools. There are three of them currently running in, in Delhi. They're exceptionally good schools, yeah. sought after. Mm-hmm. But these are fee-charging schools mm-hmm. that are promised here is an education for life. Sure. Then we have two universities. One is Shivnada University in the south. It originally started as SSN College of Engineering, but now it's becoming a full university. And then we have the Shivnada University in uh, Dadri in the north, wow. which is where I'm on the executive council. So if you look at the education cycle lit- from literacy all the way up to PhDs, we cater to them in a complete cycle. Now the art, where does art fit into all of this? No, before that, and these universities, right. they offer all specialities. So or? the Shivnada University North, okay. where which is in Dadri and which I'm on the executive council of, is a multidisciplinary university. Okay. So we have schools of engineering, natural sciences, humanities, social sciences, and, and business, okay, right? But all of them are woven together in a fabric of interdisciplinarity, right? So it's a multidisciplinary university which encourages interdisciplinary things. So I remember Shiv's vision again, and I will keep quoting him because he's one yeah. of the most brilliant men that I have had the opportunity to literally sure. interact with in my life, was that, look, a poet should be able to go to a mathematics class if he's inspired by the beauty of mathematics. Mm-hmm. As much as a mathematician should be going to go to poetry class to enjoy the beauty of Correct. poetry. Absolutely. At the undergraduate level, you can literally take programs from other schools. There are some basic programs that you learn. So the idea is, it's at four-year programs, by the way. It's not three years. Unlike Delhi University, you went to four years, went back to three yes. years. I think the four-year program is enormous merit. And you know, like in the U.S., which has been built on a four-year undergraduate program, you get far better grounding than you do in, the, in mm. these three years. Mm. Right? SSN, which has become SNU South now, initially only at engineering and a school of business. Now it is also becoming a multidisciplinary university with schools of economics, schools of mathematics. So the whole idea is, I mean, yeah. she always said, stoke the intellectual talent. I cannot do what the government does. But if I create the right kind of leadership, that leadership will then ensure that they spread the message of development. It's a very powerful vision. Fortunately, in our case, backed by the resources. And the resources are not the only thing. The resources are only a means to an end. It is the vision and the people who implement that to make the change, meaningful change. And what is very reassuring is that you're talking of PhD. And, you know, one of the big problems we have in our country is that we are not producing enough PhDs. And no disrespect to PhDs, uh, people we are producing are not good enough. They're not publishing enough research papers. So SNU, the Shivnada University, is a research-based multidisciplinary university. And it would be an interesting statistic that I must give you. Of the 2,100 students at the Shivnada University in the North, we have 180-odd PhDs. It's a huge number. This is across all the schools. You know, from engineering, sciences, humanities, social sciences, 
and business. Fantastic. And then coming to your art foundation. So art, yeah. Art was actually an interesting thought. I mean, I remember, you know, the Narber family owns some of the most incredible art in the country. It started as a private passion. Is this, like, is this primarily Indian art or global? So it is South Asian, but dominant, started as dominantly Indian and South Asian. But Kiran Narder is broadening her collection over time because, you know, museums like people, like universities, like any institution yeah. evolve over time. Yeah. Initially, the collection is dominantly Indian. That is modern and contemporary art, right? There's some other Ravi Varma, which are priceless. Uh, there's a limited collection of the Bengal School, early Bengal School. And then, of course, there's a lot of collection of, you know, the, the more recent artists, including art in all forms. So it doesn't, our normal definition of art is what you see, like you've got wonderful yeah. art around here at your home. But art manifests itself in, in various ways. There are paintings, there's yeah. sculpture, there's yeah. projected art. There's suspended art. I mean, you really have to come to the Kiranada Museum of Art, which, by the way, is completely free. Mm-hmm. Nothing is charged there. They do phenomenal programs for children to come and experience materials, colors, art. We do dance and art, dance and you know, music and art. Attended some of these. They're exceptional because they try to fuse the creative side. You know, the creative side is an incredibly important side. We underestimate it in our passion to do what I call the left brain side of education. You know engineering, sciences, STEM, but art is what really opens your mind to creativity. And so this was actually Kiran Nada's passion. And she said, listen, I mean, you know, you're collecting so much art. And together said, listen, let's put it out for for public display, for public consumption, for public good. And today, Kiran Nada Museum of Art is in the largest facility, about 25,000 square feet, is in Saket, uh, in a mall, bustling mall, because that's where their footfalls. The second one is at Noida. That was the original one. And there are lots of little installations, including one of the Purim, if you've seen one in, at the Horizon Center here in Gurgaon. Mm-hmm. The intent ultimately is to build a museum of art, which will happen which will happen in Noida. The, it has just been awarded. The contract has been awarded. So you'll have a public space where you can research. You have a library. You have an auditorium. You can sit out, hopefully in winter. And enjoy a nice cup yeah. of coffee like we're doing right now. So that was the intent of the Kiran Nadu Museum of Art. So it's the foundation Wonderful. is a very interesting mm-hmm. foundation. Very recently, Roshni Nadar Malhotra, Shiv's only daughter, has started a Habitat, India Habitats Trust, mm-hmm. where she has a personal passion for preserving wildlife and the natural habitat. Mm-hmm. So we're doing some interesting work in the northeast and the parts of India to try and preserve some of the endangered species as well. Fantastic. So it's a very rich area and at this phase of my life I'm enjoying contributing whatever in whatever way I can. I can see you're very passionate about whatever you're doing right now. Without passion the world doesn't move. Absolutely. So moving on sort of you know you have incubated a lot of startups and you know startups have their own sets of challenges you know they have achievements they have frustrations. What are some of the basic mistakes startup entrepreneurs make and that you have experienced? You know, it's an interesting question. I, I think I work for one of the greatest entrepreneurs India has produced. Correct. Probably the world has an exceptional man. And he used to always say that, look, inside, deep inside the entrepreneur's mind, and I, I want to make it very clear, I'm not an entrepreneur. I'm with you. I just don't have that ability to conceive of an idea out of literally out of nowhere. Sure. Most entrepreneurs start with an idea that seizes them from inside and mm-hmm. says, you know, there's a there's a business idea there, and very often they do not know where they are going ultimately. Shiv used to always say that, look, you know, you can see the woods, but you can't see the trees Correct. when you're an entrepreneur. So, like most entrepreneurs, you tend to start off with a relatively fuzzy vision, 
and try to sharpen that over time. So one of the mistakes, right? One is if you are not able to convert that, you know, vision, the woods that you see without the trees, the granularity of the trees, you have to move that sooner or later. And a great entrepreneur must know when to give way to a good operator. I learned this from Shiv because Shiv, you know, for much of his life as a brilliant entrepreneur, always ceded control to an operating guy. You to say operating guys are far better than I am. And he would give it to a guy and say, run with it. I want these objectives, man. I want this you know, review system. I want these processes to be to be taken care of. But so entrepreneurs often make the mistake of confusing the running of the business with the original establishment of the business. One big thing. Establish the vision. But at some point, if you can't operate, let it go. Yeah. Or in other, in, in, it's also said as separate ownership from management. Exactly, exactly. You know, and, and some people have done it brilliantly. I mean, yep. you know, there was an example of Aishar, of Richard yep. giving way. Yeah. The Tata Group always, you Correct. know, uh, did a lot of that, but professionals yep. from outside. You know, you've seen, I mean, I've seen Unilever, you've seen IDC. It's, these are firms that are run with very high principles of business and values. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you always keep throwing up talent, which you say, okay, guys, just run with it. Yep. So the other one is, at which point do you begin to be flexible enough. So one is, of course, detailed vision, running the company versus owning it, as you correctly pointed out. The other one is, you know, being nimble enough to be able to quickly tweak the business model to adapt to the circumstances. A lot of entrepreneurs come into the model and then they are just refuse to budge. Right? Sometimes it works, but very often it fails because in today's market, you know, the, I've always reminded of this Carol King song, you know, I feel the earth move under my feet. I used to love that song. Mm. And it's moving all the time, especially where I come from. And most of my experience has been in technology because in 19 years or more than 19 years I spent there, is the ground changes every day. You can get up in the morning and suddenly find a new disruptive friend, which you didn't even imagine would be there a week ago, 10 days ago, right? Things move very quickly. So tweaking the business model is extremely important. One more thing I want to mention is, you know, people often say that, look, we run out of money, right? And I remember having this discussion, you see the world is a washed capital. There's more capital today in the world and liquidity is just not an issue. There's Absolutely. so much money. Correct. So if someone says he doesn't have the money, it's a problem. I am advising a lot of startups now in, in this phase of my life. And very often they come to me and say, look, I've got this idea. I've got going. I put my money, my friends and family have put in money. Now I need some cash from guys who are buying that. So first thing I tell them is, look, do not worry about the cash. Can you articulate your idea? Correct or a piece of paper and make a compelling proposition. Entrepreneurs are awful at this. Very awful. Yeah. Right? And I've seen this from my own experience. You know, I mean, Shiv had brilliant ideas and he would call some very bright kids and I had a lot of very bright young people in my team. We actually used to sit down and write out the idea from the vision, the fuzzy idea to the vision, to the to the strategy, to the plan, the execution elements. Entrepreneurs sometimes are awful at this. I agree with you. And once you crack some of these codes, those are some of the learnings that I have. No, thank you. Those are three very, very important learnings. So again, moving to another part of our discussion. This part is really reserved for people who are of my vintage. You're younger than I am. But but I still say that you're, you know, my vintage. You know, we're at at an interesting stage of uh, our lives. I mean, I'm 62. Uh, I'm not sure if you're 60. But, you know, I think... You're 60 now? Okay. So therefore, we have crossed over to the best part of our lives. Correct. Given today's health and the kind of facilities we have, and also given the fact that unlike our parents or our grandparents, we don't have any financial liabilities or we don't have any 
you know, have much greater longevity of our lives. I believe that our so-called life post 60 will be almost equal to our working life. Absolutely. A lot of people who are friends have made no plans at all and now are struggling because they haven't thought of what they want to do. And there's only so much that you can do with playing golf twice a week, maybe playing bridge twice a week, but then what do you do for the rest of your time? What are some of your thoughts? You know, it's interesting. I, I got thinking about this when I was in my early 50s. And by the time I was 55, I almost had a, a you know, I thought a plan in place. And it wasn't one. As I someone do. who spent so much time in strategy, I wouldn't have <laughs> expected any different from you. But okay. So that's what I thought a lot about it, right? And I said, look, what is it that I can do best when I'm off the thing? Energy levels tend to fly. You're no longer okay. young, so your ability to work 12 hour days is probably still there if you're, if you're in good health. Yeah. But your ability to have, let's say, 50% of the time, highly productive goes down a lot, right? So what do you do? You, what you do have is a wealth of experience. Okay. Your biggest is your biggest asset is your reservoir of experience that you picked up over your years. So for almost four decades. Four decades and you pick up you pick up things as complex as algorithms that work. Mm-hmm. The industry I come from develops algorithms yep. and I think algorithms are a part of everybody's life. But you also develop anecdotal experience, which is how do you deal with situations and people, mm-hmm. right? And one of the things that people underestimate in India is the power of coaching. Many people who get into CEO positions are super smart, they're cerebral, they're bright, they're exceptionally good at what they do, but they lack some of the emotional maturity and what uh, many people call the executive maturity to deal with stress situations or deal with people situations or even a business problem. So I think what people like us can give back is in areas of governance, yeah. coaching, mentoring, yeah. you know, and a strategic insight. Like even if you think of yourself, I mean, you've had experience across, you know, being in Singapore, India, and, and, and a bunch of businesses. You've authored books in which you've pulled out experiences of people. You've been an entrepreneur with, with Guardian. So, you know, if you just sit down for a moment and reflect like you have as well and capture it in your books is to think about what are those top two or three things that you can do. And I figured in my case, what I could do is, A, the algorithmic training of my mind, thanks to an industry which yeah. thinks algorithms. And I don't, I don't say get locked in algorithms. Mm-hmm. The second is this wealth of experience, anecdotal experience of dealing with people and situations and how to respond to them. And the third is, how do you transmit it in a way which is non-threatening to people who say, hey, you know what, this guy's past his prime. Actually speaking, this the 60 of today is, you know, 40 of yesterday. Uh, the 40 of yesterday. I mean, I don't feel I've burned out. I mean, no. you know, thankfully, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in decent health, yeah. as some yeah. of us are. Absolutely. I think I'm super fit, mm-hmm. and you know, can go on for the next uh, 10, 15 years, hopefully. Yeah. You know, uh, yeah. And therefore, why not use those years productively? Okay. Your your desire and your appetite for money has been satiated yeah. to some extent. Mm-hmm. Everybody's greedy, yeah. uh, and therefore, how can you go into a situation? without putting money as the first consideration for, for engagement, correct? And I find that that changes the equation completely. I agree. So I work with people now and first thing they say, how do I compensate you? I say, listen, can you worry about that later? Give me a problem. Let me see how I can solve it. And I think it just opens up a world of possibility when you're not driven by the immediacy of having cash on the table. Very interesting. You know? Very so interesting. That's a great perspective. Okay, so now moving into 
the last section of our podcast, which is more questions about you personally. With such a long and successful career, what is the secret of your success? I got it. You know, I don't even know success is a word I use for what I did. Mm-hmm. I think I've just been very happy with what I've done. I mean, the first thing is just be happy in what you do. I mean, uh, and if you're not happy with what you do, you move on. And at each point I, when I left, it was that I was unhappy with the previous job. Like I left, you know, Unilever, uh, like UFITC. These are enormous institutions by themselves, Correct. highly respected institutions. I didn't leave it for a dissatisfaction. Left it because an opportunity. I left Pepsi once again with an opportunity to join Group Seven as a CEO at the age of thirty-five. I said, "Wow, you know, I imagine being a CEO at this this early stage of my life." And I left Group Seven to come to HCL. Because I heard the calling of technology, and that's so happened. I spent my entire life there, and I haven't had a dull moment. And the reason I decided to step off a full-time role and start doing things which are more satisfying here is, I felt that I my role at HCL was kind of over. And if you recognize those uh, signals, they're usually you know literally staring at you. I remember she used to tell me. At all points in life, just sit down for a moment quietly and ask yourself: Can you separate signal from noise? Right. So I use another technology yeah. term. Yeah. Well, that's what I've kind of you know that's what's patterned my yeah. mind now. Yeah. Is that if you read that signal, then you must take the noise out, read the signal, and follow that signal. And that's the only thing I've done. And the other thing I've always done is I've followed my heart, which I think is more powerful than the mind. The mind plays tricks with you. Yeah. The heart usually does not, because I think the emotional side is very important. And I think finally, the most important thing is what I remember Dr. Ashok Ganguly telling me: integrity. If you hold that inside you, and integrity in all forms, I'm not just talking about financial, correct? And I know lots of corporate governance issues where integrity is completely. I'm talking even even simple things like personal integrity. Absolutely. Can you be honest with people? Can you get back to people on time? If you tell somebody ten o'clock, can you be there at ten o'clock? Uh, I know I let you down last time, so you're right on time or before time. Yeah. So these are some very simple things that if you Principles. Everybody has them. I'm sure if you ask everybody coming onto your yeah. program here, we'll have a few. I don't think there's any magic, but I think there's simple things in life that you can extract. And the converse of that, for my question, we all have lots of failures. What would be some of your learnings from your failures? Many of the failures have been in technology. You know, I think because technology is such a minefield yeah. that you know I've gone into businesses which haven't worked. Or we've thought they would work and they wouldn't work. And the only one example I want to give because of the time we have here sure. is strategy is working on for Japan. Japan is one of the most difficult markets to penetrate, leave alone for technology I mean, for anybody. I mean, you look at foreign business trying to come to Japan; it's very hard, extremely hard, like a China. Not that you can't establish successful business, but it requires something exceptional. So I was at it for two years, and we kept knocking on doors. This process of decision making in Japan. Is extremely slow, very deliberate, very painfully consultative. Uh, numerous meetings, analysis paralysis. At the end of two years, I remember she was telling me that listen, sort of, you can push so hard and so no more. I mean, why don't we just why don't we just take that emotional bug out of your mind and say just put your energy somewhere else? It took a lot to eat me out because I got into Japanese culture. I began to enjoy the sake and shochu, and I started learning the language yeah. even so much that I figured out hiragana, katakana, which is the way Japanese written. And you know, it was difficult to tear myself away from it, but I did. 
I saw that initially as a failure, but today, you know, HCL does a reasonable amount of business in Japan. We are the biggest engineering services there. And, you know, the lesson I learned out of that was that, look, every failure has the lessons for sowing the seeds of the next success. Fantastic. So that's the one that I, that I do want to mention. Right. The only other one, other one I want to mention is the integrity. I talked about integrity before. It's such an important value for me because of what I learned. And, I, mm. you know, we're all middle class people who gave up the hard way. Is I was let down when I was in Hindustan Diva Unilever Exports. Mm-hmm. Like you ran that phenomenal office of yours. I was dealing with someone who in Hong Kong who let me down very badly. I mean, I won't go into details. Yeah. And, you know, I, I start with trusting someone. I called up the guy and said, what went wrong? So he said, look, I'm coming to India. I'll talk to you. And when I met him, he seemed like a perfectly reasonable person. I looked him in the eye, I had dinner with him and his wife. And I felt, hey, you know, perhaps I was wrong in my judgment. And I trusted him a second time and he again let me know. Then I realized that do not take people at their face value. You must, you must genuinely test integrity literally through an Agni prediction. I agree. When that, if somebody passes that and, you know, then you're home. Well said. There's so much business is done on trust. I agree. So my final question to you. When was, given all the, the exciting life that you have led and are leading, when was the last time you did something for the first time? I started doing a lot of things for the first time after I had stepped off a full-time role. Plenty of things. Correct. Like I started learning dancing, I had two left feet. Amazing. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> right. Uh, I want to learn music. I don't think I'm musically talented. I want to give that a shot. Right. I was always fond of trekking and physical fitness, but I started going on treks. Recently, I went for a trek in, in Switzerland. I enjoyed it. I've done some other treks before. I did skydiving with my son in South Africa when he was back. So, I'm always open for the next new adventure, something which I've not done. Fabulous. Right? I don't know what the next one is going to be, but if I can start dancing with yeah. two left feet, I can start skydiving from whatever, 12,000 feet, looking down and saying, oh my God, I mean, you know, the hills below once. You know, those, those kind of things I'm ready Fantastic. to try every time. Fantastic. I haven't done bungee jumping. Yeah. Too scared. Hmm. <laughs> Saurabh, thank you so much. I think your comments have been really transparent. You've been honest about your entire journey. I'm sure the thousands of people who listen to our podcast will really enjoy your story. Thank Thank you you again for coming. Thank you again. Thank you for listening to the Brand Called You podcast. Be sure to visit tbcy.in to join the conversation, access show notes and discover fantastic bonus content. You can follow us on YouTube, Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Simply search for The Brand Called You. Thank you and see you next week.